If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verse 13, which is the end of the passage at when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, and then into his ministry in Galilee. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all region round about. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, as his custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. When Luke decided that he was going to write a book on the life of Christ for uh, the man Theophilus, uh, he researched everything. He was not one of the disciples. Matthew was a disciple. John was a disciple. Um, Luke was actually a, a friend of Paul's and went on Paul's missionary journeys. And so he did not have firsthand information about what Jesus said. But as he researched it, uh, he came up this, with all of this in order to write to this man. And his book, you have to remember, a writer always writes a book for a purpose. So the stories or the, what is included and what is not included is just as important. When we look at Luke and say, what did he put in? What did he leave out? What did he emphasize? What did he start with? What did he end with? Uh, what's the tone of the book? You can see what he, who his audience is and what he's trying to get people to understand about Christ uh, just from the, from the structure of the way the book is put together. Luke is different than John. So, for instance, if you were to see John, and John starts with uh, the baptism of Jesus, and then you see um, after that John the Baptist then tells people that this is the Messiah, recognizes at his baptism that the Holy Spirit has come upon him. God had said this, is, this will be the Messiah tells people to go follow him. Uh, uh, Jesus' early disciples were disciples of John, that John said, that is the Lamb of God. Follow him. Don't follow me. I'm just, I'm just the one getting you ready for him. That's who you follow. So you'll have not just the identification, but he makes his first disciples. Uh, in Galilee, uh, he works his first miracle. He uh, turns water into wine. Then he makes a, sh a short uh, sojourn in Capernaum, which is nearby to, Gal uh, to Nazareth. Then he goes south to Jerusalem, and he spends his first Passover in Jerusalem. He cleans the temple area. Um, he upsets the tables and, and uh, in, starts being very, very strong and, and being very open. People are now seeing who he is. He's doing miracles uh, so much that even Nicodemus, who is a synagogue leader, who's on the I'm sorry, he's a 
Sanhedrin. Uh, he's in one of the one of the top leadership positions in the entire country. Comes to Jesus by night and said, "There's nobody that can do what you do unless God's with him. Please, you know, let's talk." And he has an interview with Nicodemus. He comes back up from Jerusalem via Samaria with, and has uh, meets the woman at the well. He then goes back up to uh, to. Uh, Galilee, and in this time, it's almost a year has passed. But Luke starts his his book with the parents of John the Baptist for an entire chapter. Then you have the birth of Christ, which um, that's normally where you would go at Christmas because it's the most comprehensive story of the, the Christmas story. Then you have uh, he, he growing up. He's in the temple at age twelve with the with the doctors of the law, just mystifying them with his understanding and his comprehension, his discernment. Then, chapter 4, he goes into the, into the desert to be tempted of the devil. When he comes from the desert, the next passage that Luke tells is this sermon that's in Capernaum. So, what is in the first uh, several chapters of John and, and probably the first ten chapters of Matthew... Luke completely omits. So Luke is writing with a different perspective in mind. He takes an event from this early ministry of Jesus and positions it at the very beginning of his public ministry in a, in a position of prominence. So if it's first, it's the first thing you see about Jesus. And he's positioning that to say, in his opinion, this is Jesus' ministry. This is why he came. This is uh, what identifies him. This is his uh, purpose statement. Okay, so, so in Luke's opinion, this sermon, among many, many sermons, uh, is the first thing he shows in his gospel to emphasize who Christ is. So let's look together. Who is Christ according to his own word? What's, what's, what's God say about this? What is, why, why does Luke position uh, this event here in this first prominent place uh, as he's explaining uh, who Jesus is? So looking in verse 14, we'll start in 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So you remember that, that Jesus is never stopped being God. Jesus is not just a man that God is using. Jesus is, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, but, but more than the Messiah, he is God himself. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is eternally the Son, unbegotten, never made, just begotten but never made. That idea of always, forever, the Son of God from, from before time and for after time. Uh, that he will always be the son. So this is God, and he never stopped being God. But he relied on the Holy Spirit as a man. When he became a man, and that's why, that's why so many would mock uh, this faith of ours, that the idea that God would become a man is um, perplexing and, and totally amazing, amazing and baffling in so many ways. That the Holy Spirit of God, which proceeds from Christ himself, he's relying on the Holy Spirit in the same way that we rely on the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus knew something, he didn't know it in his omniscience. It wasn't his, his deity 
that allowed him to know things or to do things. He did not perform miracles in his own omnipotence. He, had, he never stopped being God, but as a man, he relied on the Holy Spirit. He prayed. He fasted. He did those spiritual disciplines that would allow him to depend upon the Holy Spirit the same way that all of the, the children of God would do that. And he is in many ways being for his people what they could not be for himself. So he returns in the Spirit. You see that he just came from the wilderness for 40 days tempted uh, in the wilderness by the devil. So when you put the word 40 with the word wilderness, immediately it doesn't take someone that knows very much about the Bible to say, well, that's just like the Hebrews. The Hebrews, when they were were freed from their bondage in, in Egypt, went into the wilderness and it would have taken you know, two weeks to, to march two million people from, from uh, upper Egypt through to, to Palestine. But God did not want him to go so fast. He was trying to teach them about him. And so they went into the desert, and then because of their disobedience, they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years until everyone for that generation died as a judgment of God on their lack of faith and dependence. So... For 40 years, they wandered around in the, in, the, in the desert, always complaining, always griping, nearly stoning Moses over and over again, would have stoned God if they could have. They showed themselves to be nothing but brats, and where they were failures at being God's son, because Israel is called God's son, Jesus proves himself to be faithful. Where Adam failed as a human, Jesus passes every test. And so he comes back from this event completely having vanquished the devil. And he is in full power of the Spirit. So he's reliant. He's, uh, the, the Spirit is doing all things in his life. So end of 14 it says, And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. So even Luke says that he, this wasn't the first sermon that he's preached. He's preached even in other, other synagogues in the north, very nearby, and he's famous. And he's already commonly held to be a rabbi. People are already calling him teacher because he taught like no one else. He taught with authority, but yet he was never arrogant. He never made you think he was better than you. He was meek in his person. When Jesus says, Come, come to me, you who are, are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Learn from me, because I am meek and lowly in heart. So Jesus, who, who is exactly what you want to know about God, look into the person of Jesus, and that is what God is like. God, who has full power, complete freedom to do anything that he pleases, at any time that he pleases, in his self, in his person, is a meek lowly person. He doesn't try to be lofty. Though he is the high and exalted one, he knows who he is. But in his nature, he's kind to you. He lifts you up rather than squishes you because of his height. He doesn't, his dignity does not destroy others, but lifts others up. And Jesus is expressing this. So he is being glorified by all, not just because of his teaching, but also because he's doing miracles. 
He's already performing miracles that people are mystified. Whole towns are coming to him. They're breaking the roof off of houses to lower in the sick because you can't even get to him because he is totally uh, depopulating all of the sick people in each town that he goes to. By the time he leaves, there are no sick people. There are no demonized people. Everybody's free. He is showing himself already to be the Messiah. Well, the news reaches his hometown. And so he's invited to come and speak at the town synagogue. Now, that is amazing because he grew up at the synagogue. Every Saturday of his entire life was spent in this synagogue. So he, every, every day, every single Saturday, was in the back with his, his folks. He was never prominent. He never was asked to teach. This is the boy who, who amazed the doctors of the law at the, at the temple in Jerusalem, uh, was never asked to lead a Sunday school class, never once. He was never asked to, for his advice on anything. Now, I can't imagine how you could grow up with a sinless person in your congregation and not know it. Uh, not just that he never got in trouble, or not just that he, that he didn't cause a big scandal, but... He never did anything inappropriate ever. He was never unkind to anyone. He was never discourteous to anyone. He was always respectful to everyone, and his respect was genuine. It wasn't a apple-polishing kind of respect. It wasn't a try-to-get-something respect. It wasn't a fraud. And he never went along with the, with the crowd in some ways. I'm sure he was shunned from the earliest of age. You cannot be godly without persecution. That's just the way it works. Uh, We are embedded among uh, even very socially acceptable sins, as you find in the churches, that's still sin that Jesus would have never indulged in and made, you know, and you wouldn't have wanted him in your company. That, That is just the way it works. And so this is where he was brought up. He knew everybody in the room personally. Over years and years and years, he knew the butcher, he knew the baker, he knew the candlestick maker, he knew the teacher, he knew the, the people in the town, and they knew him. They knew him. I don't know what their impression of him was because his parents were very poor. There was talk all of his life about him being illegitimate, whispers, you know, nasties, you can just imagine. And... Uh, they, his parents were never power players, never that the, they didn't have political clout. And so he was overlookable. Um, he just was the carpenter's son. That's all it was. He was the carpenter's son. So now he's been asked to come. He's celebrated. He has fame. And he's coming into town. Um, having never uh, taught before, he didn't do miracles before. So Jesus at, at age nine didn't make the board that Joseph accidentally cut longer. You know, he didn't, he didn't do those kinds of, he didn't, he wasn't playing in the dirt and, and uh, make clay birds and then just, you know, caused them to be alive and fly away. Those are myth type of things that you've heard from ancient writers, but like he simply grew up as the son of Joseph in this town, but now he's got fame and now he's a celebrated rabbi and uh, there is total talk that he is a wonder worker. And so they want to see what he can do, and so they invite him there. Okay, so it says in verse 16, or end of 15, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, 
And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. You, can, you could think that Jesus could have perfect uh, communion with God anywhere he was um, and did. But it was his custom to be in the house of the Lord. Um, it was his custom, normal custom, that that's what he did. You wonder how many lifeless sermons that he would have sat through. Um, horrible butcherings of God's word, totally taken out of context. Uh, when I hear someone say something out of context, it just kills me. Uh, to know that if they would have just read the entire chapter, they wouldn't have uh, pulled what they used uh, to support one thing that really was totally backwards. Um, it just makes me, it makes me cringe that, that you really shouldn't speak unless you know what you're sp- talking about. Well, who among the human race could exposit the Word of God and not blow it, not, not give God the glory that is due His Word? Okay? Um, it says in Psalm 138 that he has exalted his word higher than his name. That God has exalted his word higher than his very name. The name of God is not even as high as God's word in God's own estimation. Well, to hear someone exposit it, and especially to be a hypocrite, to stand and Jesus being able to look right into their spirit and have him wag his hypocritical finger in your face and say, Thus saith the Lord. And not just, not just sermons, but the whole lifelessness of most people. That you're coming to worship or you're saying you're coming to worship, but no worship actually occurs. That there isn't communion with God or with each other often. And that you come expecting nothing and you leave having received nothing. And it's normal that that's just the normal way you do. You, there's various reasons why you would come to an assembly. And that's what you had in any assembly. And this day, you could imagine that it was packed. The house was packed. Everybody was there. The town bullies were there. The people that grew up next door were there. The people he played soccer with in the streets were there. Everybody everybody in town was there. Everybody wanted to see something. You could imagine how many people wanted to see him do a miracle. They wanted to see a floor show. They wanted to see something amazing that they'd never seen before so that they could run and tell the neighbors and run and tell the folks at home that that wasn't able to come. Um, I would imagine that there would be plenty of people that would, if you have somebody this famous, that that they wanted a political rally, that they wanted um, something rousing, I don't know, they wanted 70s music blaring from the loudspeakers and, and th- throwing the bouncy ball up and down and everybody screaming and doing the wave. I'm sure that there were people in that kind of a elated excitement. I'm sure every seat was taken. And people at the doors and people hanging out the windows. I, I'm sure of it because people wanted to see and they were all there for various reasons. I'm sure some people came in just because everybody else was coming in. Like the big crowd of people coming and you just join the crowd and come whatever you're doing. You don't even know why you're there. And I'm sure there were people that expected nothing because that's what all of us are like. And that we haven't changed. Humans haven't changed any. Now in a normal uh, uh, meeting in a synagogue, first century Palestine synagogue, normally they would start with some psalms. So you would everybody stand and sing the psalms together. Uh, there would be a tune everybody know and you would just sing uh, Psalm 84 or Psalm whatever, whatever, uh, whatever you were um, doing. There were several, uh, several kind of songs picked and then some that kind of fluctuated uh, week to week. Then after that, there was uh, 
normally multiple readers that would read the law. So the law was revered. The law of Moses was held in the highest esteem. And you didn't want to give one person too much glory by having them come forward and read 20 verses from the law. So normally you would get six, seven, ten people, and they would one at a time come up and read one verse or two verses and then go back to their seat. Uh, that way it gave some honor to some people because they got to read the law in the, in the service, but it didn't give too much glory to too many people. And it was almost like work if you think about it. So, so uh, that was normally the first part. And then there would be a prophet. Now, in this day, you're going to see that they're going to read from Isaiah. And then there will be a speaker. Now, there is no pastor of this church. There's no rabbi that's the pastor of this church. You would have a synagogue leader. Uh, You're going to see later Jesus heals the daughter of a synagogue leader later in the Gospels. So the synagogue leader's job pretty much was to make sure that there were teachers and he would uh, choose, select uh, people to, to be the preacher for that day. Uh, he would get them. He would make sure everything was ready for them. Then there was also an attendant that took care of the, the building, took care of the, of the scrolls and the cases and everything like that. So you, you had two kind of people that were the ministers there. The synagogue leader who got everything ready, then the attendant. And um, then after you would uh, read the prophet then that teacher, whoever was teaching that day, would, would expound on something that had been discussed before, either something from the law or something from uh, the prophet. Then, normally, there would be some uh, specially recited prayers, uh, another, another psalm, and then, and then they'd leave. So, verse 17 says, There was delivered into his hand unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Okay? Now, you, it could possibly be that, the, that um, Isaiah 61 was that assigned text for that day. That was the, what was supposed to be read that day. There, there was some kind of a, um, a, like a yearly uh, curriculum that they were going through that you did this on this day. And it, that was simply the assignment for that day. Or uh, because Jesus was the, was the preacher that day and kind of a celebrated guy, they may have said, you'd select your, your text. So um, if that was the case, if you were handed the prophet Isaiah, uh, what could Jesus have preached from? (laughs) Knowing what Isaiah is, I mean, Isaiah often is called the gospel of Isaiah because though it was 600 years before Christ, in terms of of seeing Jesus in the passages, it's as nearly as easy to see Jesus in Isaiah or in certain portions, especially the end of of Isaiah from, say, 40 on, as anything in the Gospels. Like, it, it, Jesus is everywhere, and, and obviously everywhere. So, so what could Jesus have, have picked? I got online and uh, went to the museum in Jerusalem that's housing the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found a full scroll of Isaiah, perfectly complete, all complete, still all rolled up, and the great scroll of Isaiah. It's about 100 years earlier than Jesus. Um, and when you look at it, it's in columns. So there's like a, like a, you know, like a one verse and then a verse under, verse under, and that whole column, and then it moves forward. Now, Hebrew goes from the right to the left. You read it from the right to the left. That meant 
that you would have to unroll the scroll with your left hand and roll it up with your right hand. Okay? And so, so my question myself was, where could he have preached from? If, if he had the choice of any passage in Isaiah to preach, where could he preach? This is just, uh, I just picked four. Uh, it could have, there could have been 40, but I just picked four that I thought would, would have been wonderful to hear Jesus preach on. Preach on. First one is Isaiah 7. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. <laughs> Here's Jesus standing as God. God who has always been God. The, the one who spoke all things into existence. And all thing was created by him and through him and for him. This is Jesus himself, the highly exalted one, the one every knee will bow before. God with us, he certainly could have preached from. I wrote down Isaiah 40. Um, it says, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the glory of the Lord be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Okay? So here is... Here is God in flesh standing as a man in front of humanity that God has put his favor on. <laughs> he absolutely could have preached this. This is himself. When Jesus is preaching, he's preaching the gospel of his own grace, full gr- grace of him, himself. Um, I had to write down Isaiah 53. At the end of 52, it says, His visage, his face, his countenance was so marred more than any man. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Absolutely. What, to, to listen to God himself talking about the suffering servant, that that is God, it was God's will to crush him and lay the iniquity of the entire world upon him. That it was his office. This was, this was what God had asked him to do. And he, he, who better to tell us what that is than himself? He could have absolutely preached it. The last one I wrote down was, song, was Isaiah 60, which is on the resurrection. Arise, shine, for thy, life is, thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise on thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. So he chose none of these passages, though he could. But he chose instead Isaiah 61. The first two verses, actually first verse and a half of Isaiah 61. So if you can imagine, he would have had to start at the beginning of the scroll and go all the way. I don't know how long it would have taken. All the way, rolling and unrolling, until he got to almost the end. There's 66 books in the book, in the book of Isaiah. And he preaches this passage that starts, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The, he hath anointed me. Okay? So everybody in the room knew that this was a messianic uh, text. It had probably been preached in that uh, synagogue over and over and over again. I'm sure, because that is all that first century Palestine uh, synagogues would have wanted to hear, is the Messiah. For 500 years, ever since the Babylonian captivity, 
one nation after another had owned Israel, basically acted like a puppet, just taxed them and ruled them. They didn't have, they didn't have autonomy. They, didn't have, they were not in charge of themselves. It was either Babylon or you know, the, then the Medes and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, one after one after one after one after one. And they wanted a, an Alexander the Great. They wanted a strong man. They wanted someone to come and whoop up on the Romans and kick them out of town. They wanted to ascend to their rightful place of the highest level in the world as God's people. Okay, so they, they loved it when the, everybody's eyes lit up when Jesus read that. They instantly knew what he was reading. Okay? So, so just to review these passages, you can look at it starting in verse 18. What was the job title? Why, what was it, what, why Jesus picked this? To say this is what the Messiah was doing. And remember, this is what Luke is choosing. This is the first thing he's putting in the ministry of Christ. Before we see anything that he's done, we hear these, this sermon as his, his purpose. Okay? So, first thing it says in 18 is to preach the gospel to the poor. Okay? So, you know, what does that mean? Well, let's look at it. Uh, He's to bind up the brokenhearted. That's what the Messiah was to do. Those that were brokenhearted, he was to act as a nurse or a medic or a doctor uh, or as someone kind, like a mother. Okay, So you preach the gospel. You proclaim good news uh, to the poor. Preach deliverance. So you're declaring deliverance to the captives, that the prison doors might be open and the recovery of sight to the blind. This is what the Messiah would take. It takes God to do these things. It takes God to truly deliver you if you're a captive. It takes God to deliver you uh, from true broken heart and to bind up those wounds. Okay? Um, uh, that he would set at liberty them that are bruised. So liberator, that he's a liberator. And then in verse 19, to blow the jubilee trumpet. Now we'll look at the jubilee uh, Tonight, that's what we'll look at tonight it's from Leviticus 25. That is the context of Isaiah's passage. Um, it says here to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and we'll look at the, what that means. So, so my question then is, you know, what were the people expecting? What were they thinking? So he he closes the book. He gives it back to the minister, and he sits down. Now he doesn't go back to his seat in the auditorium and sit down. Um, he is. He reads at the lectern. Okay, the, the scroll is kept in a box in the front of the room, and the you know covered with a cloth and uh, and cared for very prominently. So he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. The attendant puts it away. He then sits on the chair that's on the platform or on the dais here in front of everyone prominently. So it's it's kind of like an old, an ancient world. Um, honored teacher kind of kind of thing. So he sits down to, to speak and he says, and it's what he says in verse 21, and he began to say to you, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Now, it takes a moment for people to get it. It takes a moment for it to sink in what he has just said. He said, while you were watching me, while you were listening to me read this passage, this messianic text which is talking about the deliverer, the Messiah, God's anointed, the son of David, has come to pass while you've been watching. It is now 
true and in the past. This is not future. It's not something you're looking for. So with no equivocation, he is claiming to everyone in the room, I am the Messiah. I am the one that will bind up the brokenhearted. I am the one that will deliver the captives. I am the one that will give sight to the blind. And uh, you could just imagine just how everybody's just, they don't even know how to, how to act. They don't know what to say. They, they just, they open their mouth and they close their mouth. And they open their mouth, they don't, they don't, they want to say something, they don't know what to say. I, I'm sure that the, the synagogue leader passes out cold in the floor. You know, you've got Jesus's brothers in the room, Jude and, and, you know, Jude and James, both of who write epistles later in the Bible, you know, swallow their gum, the, the T-ball team or the little league all just, just stare at him. Like, what did he just say? Did he, is he claiming to be the Messiah? <laughs> so in some ways, it's okay to say the Messiah is coming. Everyone loves that idea that, that, that we will be vindicated, that God is going to rescue us. But this it can't be him. He is not even a, this was a, a nobody even here. We, we live in nobody land, and this was a nobody even in this town. So, you know, per, perhaps in a, in a backwater town like this, if someone came from New York City or, you know, hi, I have a Harvard degree, and it's possible that you could convince some, somebody that you were somebody, like that people would buy it. But here, they, they just, they marveled how in the world could it have been possible, okay? So... So here is, here's Jesus preaching his own gospel, but everybody is, everybody is just dumbfounded. What, what do they do with this? Is it possible that, this, that he could be the Messiah? What is he talking about? And you, you have like the beginnings of the stir, the mob, that will eventually at the end of this passage try to kick him off of a cliff and kill him. The, they rise up at the end of this, of this sermon and rush him out of the doors to kill him because they're enraged. That you can beginning the, the little bubbling and the de- deep down as they're, as they're coming to terms with he is actually claiming to be the Messiah. So in some ways, he has put the Jubilee trumpet to his lips and he's blasted the trumpet and nobody in the room is ready for it. So in some ways, the mountains that are still there and the valleys that are still there in the way are still there. They have yet to be removed. Now, some of these people will come to the Lord. There were 3,000 people right after the resurrection, right after the crucifixion, that became believers. So there were people in this country that many turn to the Lord during this time. The church grew in exponential, and many people that would have heard him later, the mountain would have been dropped, or the valley would have been raised, and they would have been able to get to it. But at the moment, nobody in the room had any idea of what he had just said, or how that they could comprehend it. Okay, They basically, look at 22, they all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So they, they couldn't put it together. They were like, I've never heard anybody talk like this. It almost felt like I was being suspended that God loves me, that he truly wanted to meet my need. I could feel his, his spirit here, and I could hear it. And then, but then I just considered him like, no, this can't be the Messiah. 
I've decided, my prejudice has already decided that it cannot be God's answer to me. I, I don't know, I'm sure that I have been there a thousand times. I mean, it's a history of my heart that I sit with my prejudice. The things I've already decided are going to happen. The Already the way I think God is. Already what I think a passage means. I've decided it. And when God is directly trying to teach me something, I just it just bounces off the front of my head and, and bounces off. I mean, that's just that's how I am. And that's how most people are. And this room, even though God himself was the preacher, spirit-filled preacher, preaching the gospel that he wrote himself about his own grace. Nobody, even the people who knew him, that were even kindly disposed to him, nobody responded in faith and repentance in that room. And you're like, wow, even Jesus can preach and people are still dead. It's just because that's how we are. It does take the Holy Spirit enlivening you and giving you eyes to see and ears to hear. Otherwise, we will all reject Christ. Nobody in this planet has ever wanted Jesus. It is only God who chases you down and, and crushes you in order to reset those bones so that you will want him. There is a grace in God is a gracious to me when he crushes my dreams so that I'm ready to receive the Lord. Some of you have, have very dramatic testimonies to where God has absolutely just clobbered you so that you're now ready to see. Others have even what I would consider more powerful testimonies that from the earliest age you don't even remember the time you didn't trust God because God worked on you and worked on you. And back when the hills were not too tall and the valleys were not too deep, He worked on that land and you simply walked in trusted, trusted Christ. That is even Jesus um, came up across opposition because He had not yet culminated. He had not yet died for us. He not yet became the curse for us. The Holy Spirit had not yet descended upon the church. And there is greater things you will do after I go to my Father than even He could do. Simple people, not the Son of God, could preach and people will actually believe the gospel because the Holy Spirit is there saying, that's right, believe it, that's true. Okay? Now, it, very cool in 23, he changes his tone. See, you'd think he's not preaching, but he's still preaching. He's still in the middle of his sermon. It says in 23 and 4, he said to them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever you have heard done in Copernicum, do here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say to you, no prophets except in his country. So he's, they're saying, you, you know, Physician, heal thyself. If you think, if you're saying you're the Messiah, prove it right now. Do something. Do a miracle right now. Let us see. I want to see what the Messiah can do. You know, put your money where your mouth is. They're proving that they've entirely missed all of it. No one understood Isaiah 61 in the room. Uh, even though they'd heard it, they never, they never had ears. So they had ears to hear, but no perception. They had eyes to see, but they couldn't see. They could not perceive. Okay? So it's almost a judgment to be able to hear God's word and it not mean anything. That's a judgment of God. If you close off your heart over and over and over again, one of the judgments that Jesus will do himself on you is that you will never understand. That you'll simply be hardened and hardened to the point where you will never turn. As you harden your heart... 
don't forget that it's not, you're not the one in charge. You harden your heart, it's absolutely within God's total rights to say, fine, have it your way. My judgment on you is that you get exactly what you want. You want to go your own way? Go your own way. Go all the way to your own way. And, and it is a terrifying thing. When you think of the true holy God, he's terrifying. He is kind. There's no kinder being in the universe. But it's terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. And here's Jesus speaking in front of people, and they've missed it. Here's 25. This is amazing. He's still preaching. But I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heavens were shut up three years, six months, and the great famine was throughout the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent unto uh, Sarepta, the city in Zion, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the days of Eliasis, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, saving Naaman, the, prophet, the Syrian. So he picks two passages from Old Testament history that nobody likes. These are two foreigners who have appealed to God and God showed mercy to them in the time when he didn't show mercy to his own people. So you have Elijah who, who asks this lady who's picking up some sticks, will you make me a cake and bring it to me? And she said, sir, I'm picking up these sticks. I'm going to go home and make my last pancake and then my son and I are going to die. And he said, will you make me one first? And she makes him a pancake and for day after day, for three and a half years... That basket of flour never runs out, and there's always one more drop of oil in the, in the cruise. It, it's amazing. And then, so, then you have the Syrian, Naaman, who is the general of the Arameans, the, uh, the Assyrians, and they're the enemies of Israel for centuries. And he comes, and Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him, just tells his servant, go dip in the Jordan seven times, and you'll be cleaned. And he does, and he's cleaned like a baby. And both of these are, he's talking about, what does the Messiah do? Do you remember what the first thing the Messiah was? I mean, he's still preaching. It's to, buy, it's to preach the gospel to the poor. And he said, here's two poor people. You have a penniless poor person, this lady who had nothing, who was d- destitute. And you had this fabulously wealthy poor person. Both of them who saw their need, who then came to Jesus, to came, sorry, came to God in full dependence that he would meet their need, and God miraculously met their need. That is what the poor is. Now, I'm not sitting in that synagogue, but I'm reading my Bible, and I realize that's the end of what's recorded here from that sermon. So I stop and I go, stop, Brian. If the poor is not what I thought the poor was, if he's telling me the poor is the poor towards God, the poor towards my own who I am, what my capabilities are, and I go to God in, in humility and ask for what he has to give me if I'm going to have anything. That's not the same as poor. Then I have to look and say, oh, these other things must be, I must be confused about them all. What does it mean to be brokenhearted? What does it mean to be a captive? What does it mean to be bruised? And realizing that Jesus is teaching the acceptable year of the Lord. And again, we'll look at that tonight, the Jubilee. He's proclaiming it. He's blowing the Jubilee trumpet of freedom. But it's only the people that are poor that he's preaching the freedom to. Only those who see their desperate need of him are the ones that that will have the acceptable year of the Lord. It's only the ones that are the captives that know they're in prison, that know they're trapped, that know that there's nothing that they can do 
to meet God's requirements, that I've offended a holy God. I'm undone, and there's nothing but wrath for me. And then when I hear that Jesus is offering me grace, I'm ready. Now I have eyes to see. Now I have uh, ears to hear. Now I respond in faith. And when someone is ready for the gospel, there is effect, like there is visual, they're broken, they're crushed, they want God. They want what He has to do. They want the gospel. It's not something that they'll, oh yeah, I'll just add it to my million other things in my life. These people are not saved. These people have never been, they're not saved from something because they've never lost anything. If you are not impoverished, the word poor here is really strong. It's the word cringe. It's the idea of like covering your face in a cringing way so that you're not looking in anybody's eyes while you reach out your hand. Like if I am to live, it's because your charity is to put something in my hand so that I right now can go get something to eat or I'm going to drop over dead. That's poverty. That's the poor in spirit. When in Matthew, on the Sermon on the Mount, when it says, you know, the poor and uh, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's talking about. Okay, that is that. So those are the captives, the one, the ones that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those are the ones that the the acceptable year of the Lord is preached to. So when when he has blown this trumpet and it's liberating, he's not just an attentive medic binding our wounds and preaching to the poor and opening the the prison bars, but he's also trumpeting liberty. So tonight we're going to look in, in chapter 25 of Leviticus, and it says that the acceptable year of the Lord is the Jubilee. That's what Isaiah was thinking. Isaiah wasn't thinking about Rome. Isaiah saw it as he's the one, the Messiah will be the trumpeteer. He will be the herald. He will pronounce liberty. And it was of law that on a certain day, liberty was to be pr- pronounced acro- throughout all the land. The same verse that's actually... Uh, cast into the ring at the top of the liberty bell. That, that's what the Messiah did, that he would pronounce this. And when he put his trumpet to his lips and he blew out this blast, he opened the acceptable year of the Lord. And it's still open. Even now as the acceptable year of the Lord, it's not, the, the, the door of Noah's Ark has not yet closed. It's open for all. He did something re- remarkable by being the herald saying, God will forgive you based upon the fact that I'm going to be cursed. So when the gospel is that Jesus is Adam, he's better than Adam, he, he passed where Adam failed, he is Israel, where Israel failed, where I failed, he is for me what I need. Jesus is, makes me acceptable because he was rejected. That's the gospel. And so this is now open for us. And the last thing that I think is really interesting is that he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the guy, but he doesn't finish the verse. Chapter 61 or chapter 61 of Isaiah ends this way. This is um, this is Isaiah 61 verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that's where he stopped. And the day of vengeance of our God. 
So Isaiah, when he's looking at the Messiah, he's seeing everything in a line. He sees that he brings in, he binds the brokenhearted, he opens the captive's prison, and he blows the jubilee trumpet. He can see that. And then he also sees that he brings in the day of vengeance. But Jesus doesn't. When he stands there that day, he goes into the middle of a verse. He doesn't even get to the sentence. He goes to the middle of the word and with no punctuation there, stops. He says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That is what Jesus said his job was. That is what Luke is saying his job is. That is what Jesus is offering us now. This is the acceptable day of the Lord. I think it's interesting that it's a year of acceptance, but it's a day of vengeance. He is not the avenger here in his first coming. He will be the avenger. The blood will be up to the horse's bridles as he conquers the, those who do not love God and do not obey his gospel. Th- that there will be a white horse involved, but this wasn't the time. He is offering acceptance in himself. So if we have ears to hear, let us hear. Amen.